Hey, I'm Jason Wood, the VA Loan Guy and host of the Armed and Ready podcast. Please come and check out this exciting episode we have for you. When I was in Iraq, I carried a lightsaber up in the turret with me. Um, just had it hanging up there. And that was like my that was like my personal dedication to like or symbol of my dedication to being a light everywhere I go. That's cool. So like for me, you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to serve our country in a way that aligned with like my values as well. Um, so like the my lightsaber, like I carry one everywhere I go. And that's like my constant reminder that, that I'm, I'm, I'm a warrior who brings light and life, not death and destruction. That's really cool. And after I got out for me, um, you know, it's like I had this really big feeling that like the only thing my hands were suited for was destruction. So learning how to build lightsabers gave me a, a, a skill and a craft where now I feel like I can create things and I don't just feel like, you know, destroying is the only thing that I'm good at. Yeah, that's really cool. So you actually build like movie quality, like lightsabers now, yes, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, so, and, and, you know, not only movie quality, but I, I, do, uh, I do competitive lightsaber dueling as well. So these are, uh, uh, these are also, you know, martial arts training tools. Um, the blades are made out of a thick polycarbonate, which is the same material that goes in the construction of, of bulletproof glass. Okay. So you can actually hit these together and they won't break. Oh, they're strong, um, man. They are. They are strong. So, yeah, you can see it. And the hilts are, are ordinarily made out of uh, aircraft aluminum. Um, wow, that thing's solid. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there's a few different companies out there who make, you know, really quality um, sabers and they have great electronics and stuff like that. And I've, I've interacted with most of them and I've, I've broken most of them. Um, so for me, after I got out, you know, I was, I was, you know, still playing with lightsabers and stuff like that, but I kept breaking them and it was just too expensive to like have to keep, you know, having the company maintain them or buy a new one. So I started to learn how to make them. I started to learn how to repair the ones that I had. Um, and then from there I ended up getting a job working at this company called Saber Forge. Um, and that was a, that was a crazy experience. Um, because the owner was, uh, basically working out of the garage whenever I started working with him up in the Bay area. Gotcha. And, uh, and then we moved up to Oregon. Um, and I helped him take his company from two people in a garage to six shops in Oregon city with 70 plus employees. Um, I was part of a Kickstarter campaign that gained over like $2.1 million. Wow. I was on the news up in Oregon, like multiple times. Um, once we got the shops, I really started running his company cause he stopped showing up. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I would call him and be like, Hey, uh, there's this thing that I feel like, you know, needs an owner's like, you know, decision and to be like, figure it the fuck out. Um, so I would, and, and so I was running the machine shop. Uh, I'd be putting out fires in other departments all day and still like had to maintain a daily quota of hilts, like got gotten out as well. The same as everybody else. Oh, so yeah, yeah. A lot of responsibility. It was, it was a lot, dude. It was a lot. And, um, and over the time that I was there, like, you know, things just kept getting like kind of crazier and crazier. Um, the guy was just, the guy's just kind of abusive. Um, and not even kind of abusive. The guy's really abusive. Uh, so, you know, after, you know, I worked there for like four years and then, uh, and, <laughs> and he fired me. Uh, so, um, you know, I came back down to California to be with family and now I'm just working on getting my own business started up. That's cool. That's cool. So um, you were saying there's like a competitive thing with the lightsaber yes. stuff. So what, tell us what, what's that all about? So uh, the organization that I deal with uh, primarily is called uh, TSL. It's the Saber Legion. 
Okay. And so uh, it is uh, it is an uh, an international dueling organization. It's about three thousand members strong. Um, and yeah, we we get together and we do like full contact lightsaber dueling. We wear uh, fencing helmets and gear. Most people theme their gear. Uh, based like, off yeah. of yeah, based off of some. So it's like fencing in a way, right? Sword fighting, kind, kind of. of. I I call lightsaber combat the the mixed martial arts of 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 sword fighting because uh, when you look at the blade, it's you know it's round, right? There's, right. There's no cutting or blocking edge to a lightsaber. It's all a cutting or blocking edge. So what we call that is an omnidirectional blocking and striking surface. So what's cool about this is this works as an allegory for any sword combat you bring. So we get people from Hema. We get people from fencing, we get people from Filipino martial arts, we get people that just come in off the street, watch five animes and want to come, you know, come tangle. Um, And and it's really cool because it all translates, you know, all all the techniques, you know, translate into the lightsaber. All right. And then then you had like another another story that you were going to share with us. Um, After we got back from Iraq, um, we held the Marine Corps ball in Vegas. Okay. So we're all in Vegas. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. It's kind of a bad combo. It's right kind of there. a bad Marines combo. Marines in Vegas, Vegas yeah. is a terrible combo. So um, one of my buddies is sitting at a bar and he's just drinking. He's trashed. And uh, this guy next to him like spills a drink on him and is just rude about it. So my buddy's steaming and he's just about to go like start a fight with this guy. And then as he's about to get up to go start a fight with this guy, he feels a hand on his shoulder and this really familiar sounding voice going, hey, it's not worth it. My buddy turns and sees none other than Dan fucking Aykroyd sitting no next to him. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd <laughs> sitting next to him. And so Dan Aykroyd is just like, yeah, you know, you don't want to go start a fight with this guy. Come on, let me buy you a drink. Buys my buddy a drink, sits there, chills with him for a while, and then and then they just part their separate ways. And he kept my... He totally diffused the situation. Yeah, totally diffused the situation. Dan Good Aykroyd, for him. That's cool. Dan Aykroyd stopped a fight from going down between one of my Marine buddies and uh, and some random dude. Right on. He didn't stop my buddy, uh, my buddy K Bar, from getting kicked out of the Bellagio for getting in a fight, though. I love that because you know, as we watch the mainstream media, it's become things become so much of like a show. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's almost it's less about like the journalism and the reporting of what is actually happening, and it's like, hey, how can we manipulate story A to get us ratings, right? And and um, so I love that you guys are doing that because there's there's a lot of truth out there that isn't being shared. Um, yeah. And unfortunately there's too many eyes on that, but you know, hopefully we can get, you know, some additional eyes on what you guys are doing. Cause I think it's really cool. Kind of the advice I give people is you watch entertainment and you read the news. Um, and that's really like, yes. Um, you know, there, there's actual news that comes across your TV station, but for the most part, they are engineering what they show and what they're covering and the type of hosts that they have on there around an entertainment objective right yeah whereas uh people that are writing the news tend to be a lot more fact-based it's and for a lot of news publications ours included it's going through layers of copy editing and fact checking stuff it's not just what one individual spouts off on while they're on live tv at any given moment right so there's a lot of different layers of filters that that goes through and not that print journalists don't ever get stuff wrong of course they do but um i just i recommend people like if you really want uh, to get news and to be informed and to know what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, I, you know, behoove you, you know, read from a couple of different outlets, compare and contrast the coverage. You're going to be much more well-informed than if you're just watching one of the cable news outlets. Um, you know, you may be entertained with them, but that's, you know, it depends what your goals are. Right. Yeah. It depends on your goals. And I, I, I notice even like sometimes the local, local news, a lot of it is just, is very opinion 
leveraged, mm-hmm. right? It's it's someone's opinion of whatever's going on, but it's it's rarely like, hey, here's what's actually happening in, you know, Afghanistan today or, or wherever around the world, right? It's just like, hey, what can we yeah. what can we manipulate and, and just have an opinion on and just stir up a bunch of emotion? Pretty well known at this point that if you, you know, say something controversial or pander to one um, you know, point of view or another, that your viewership will go up and all of the, you know, yeah, from local uh, news channels all the way up to the big, you know, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they all kind of know, hey, if we are controversial or pander to one side or the other, that, you know, our ratings will stay up. And, you know, it's, it's true. Oh. It, it works. It's a proven formula. Yeah. No, Not I, great for society, though, in my opinion. I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, they, they've proven it works, but yeah, it's, it's not good for all of us. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me... Um, Tell me a little bit about um, coffee and and what's happening. You know, is the coffee industry growing? Is it shrinking? Um, where's that whole thing headed? I mean, I know, like, you know, if you look back, you know, when when Starbucks really like got big and like there was just this this craze for coffee, right? And it's I think it's been pretty well sustained. Like, I think coffee is like a pretty big like mainstream thing nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. So. Are you guys seeing any any trends as far as like the business is concerned? Is you know is is it getting more competitive? Are are there less people trying to jump into it? Because I remember at one point in time when Starbucks was hitting big, everyone was trying to open up their own little coffee stand and and stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? Because they saw this excitement around it. Um, what's what are you guys seeing right now in that industry? You know, there's more people drinking coffee, and more people are drinking more coffee um, than they did before. You know, it's uh, whereas a lot of people would have that cup in the morning and go on their day. There's a lot of people are drinking two, three, four or five cups of coffee a day at this point. And, and it's becoming, there's a lot of parts of the world that were traditionally like tea drinking companies that are now starting to drink coffee. They're, they're leaving tea behind and drinking more coffee. So it is absolutely an expanding um, uh, market for coffee. It's an expanding industry. Um, there's always competition. Uh, you know, one of the big things that's impacting the coffee industry right now is the ability to move product as well as the price like commodity coffee beans uh the prices aren't sustainable for a lot of farmers so you got a lot of farmers in coffee producing countries that are saying screw this i'm gonna go grow i'm gonna go grow pecans or avocados or you know uh some sort of other cash crop right um because of uh you know the way the price has been driven down on coffee beans but um you know, there's a lot of reporting out there right now that the because of some of the issues around, um, you know, farmers leaving the coffee industry, that's going to result in the prices going back up and everybody's going to be paying more for a cup of coffee. So in some cases, probably dramatically more because uh, it's, you know, just simple supply and demand, right? Like yeah. if the supply drops off and the demand is continuing to grow, like that price is going to go up. So what you're paying for coffee today may be, um, you know, much different than what you'll pay two years from now just depending on how this all goes. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the perfect segue into, um, you know, talking supply and demand into, um, you know, my industry, which is which is real estate. So I think, you know, we're we're seeing that on a pretty extreme side right now in alluding to what is coming through your guys' industry too. But, you know, we're seeing, and it's nationwide. I mean, I lend in 20 states, you know, primarily all with military and veterans and stuff, you know, as people are PCSing and things. Um, but we're, we're seeing in every market this, crazy amount of demand and very low supply i've got one friend who is uh looking for a house right now and his real estate agent told him like look you know he's got you know he's going to use a va loan they're like look um 
you're not going to have much luck with a VA loan right now because of the fact that to be competitive in the market in this particular area that he's moving to, it's all cash offers, no, uh, uh, no contingencies. Yeah. And like, they, like not even waiting for, you know, the basic home inspection that a VA loan requires. I mean, that's how competitive it, it is right now. And on top of that, people are coming in 50, 60, $70,000 over asking. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's crazy, you know? And, and you don't even have that many houses to choose from because you said the supply is just, you know, it kind of seems like everybody that has thought about selling in the past year has already put it out on the market, made their money. And everybody else that's got a house is kind of happy where they're at. You know, I, I don't know. It's what are you seeing? I've been fortunate with a lot of our, our VA loan clients that, you know, I, I get together with their agent and go through a pretty good strategy session. So yeah, we're not winning on the first at bat necessarily, but we're having a pretty high success rate because we come in with an actual strategy to get that that home and that offer mm-hmm. accepted. And, and like you mentioned, there's a lot of markets out there where, um, you know, the VA loan is not looked at as highly. And that's really where, you know, the advantage comes into like who your team is, right. And really trying to get yeah. that over the finish line, you know, at least get it accepted. And there's a lot of different strategies depending on the market and, and the people involved <clears throat> and, and the clients, you know, stomach for it as well on what we can do. But we're seeing a lot of offers go above the list price. But I'll be honest, depending on how much over they're going, um, I'm not seeing appraisals being too much of an issue. Um, and I think, you know, when this craze initially started, we were seeing a lot of appraisal problems, right? Because the appraisers are coming in going, mm-hmm. hey, there's no comps to support you paying 50 grand over the asking price. So sorry, the appraisal's coming in 50 grand short. And in those scenarios, you know, now the buyers and the seller got to figure out a way to make this work. And, um, yeah. oftentimes it's the buyer just forking out an extra 50 grand. Sometimes they meet in the middle and I've seen different things happen, but now that we've been having this situation for some time now, I mean, it's been about a yeah. year now yep. we're, we're seeing sales that are supporting X percent over the asking price in a, in yeah. a given neighborhood or something. So the market has gone up like the actual, it's not like somebody is overpaying for a house. That's just how much that house is worth now with the current supply, uh, like the, the market has adjusted. Totally. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you look at like Austin, Texas is probably one of the most wild markets right now. A lot of that, because you have, you know, the California Bay area, like the tech companies are moving there and, you Mm -hmm. know, home price comparisons, you know, in the Bay area, I mean, you can get a postage stamp of a studio for under a million, right? So if you had a home with any space at all, you're, you know, you're well into the millions for what that house cost. And if you have been living there a few years with this whole supply and demand thing, you got a bunch of equity. So these guys are, are all relocating to the Austin area where comparatively homes are cheap compared to what you would, you know, buy in the San Francisco Bay area. And they're going in there and they're just throwing down big bucks. Like, yeah, we'll give you 150,000 yeah. over asking price. And you know, what seller is going to say no to that, you know, yep. extra six figures. Okay. Um, and it's made yep. that market just go hog wild. It's it's incredible. Um, and I'd say it's probably one of the most crazy markets um, out there right now. But all of them are super competitive. I mean, I have some clients where it's like, you know, offer 14 is the one that finally gets accepted. Um, but tell me a little bit about um, being a drill instructor. Um, I mean, you know, obviously in movies and stuff, it's pretty glorified. Um but I don't know. I mean, the level of yelling is, is, is pretty spot on. I would, if I can recall, but, um, but tell us about, I mean, I, I have a couple friends who actually were, um, 
went through drill instructor school and we're instructors as well too. And, um, it actually, I mean, as much as we kind of make light of it, it's a critical role in the military, right? I mean, you're, you're shaping the entire military in this eight week period. So that's a great question. And I could tell you, that's one of the highlights of my career. So I got selected to go to DI school, and I went to DI school in MCRD San Diego back in the 80s. I can remember it was class 5-83. So prior to that, there, there was like five of us that were got there like 30 days earlier. We were enjoying California and everything, but we were watching how the instructors were just handling the, the students. And pretty much, you could say it was the Marine Corps version of Bud School. Right, buds, buds over there in Coronado. Yeah. So, I can unpack this as you go to DI school, you go through orientation. They in, introduce you to the uh, OIC, the officer in charge, the staff NCOIC. Then your instructors. So there's a curriculum. There's pretty much, hey, we got the first phase, second phase, third phase, whatever we got, just like boot camp. And there's curriculums, and there's certain things you have to be able to maintain a score to able to graduate from DI school. So therefore you have to pass a PFT. You have to have, back then it was, you had to have a first class PFT. If you didn't have a first class PFT, you were just filtered out. Academics was another thing, knowing the academics of uh, how we teach recruits. So if you notice in the movies or in the documentaries, drill instructors are teaching the recruits and this is what we have to do it off the bat, verbatim. Yep. From that point on, it also is knowing how to administrate first aid. And when we're taking them on a run, we can't show back when I came in that you're tired, you're exhausted. You got to be able to show that, hey, these recruits are constantly looking at you. They're, they're sizing you up and they're going to duplicate themselves based on your presence. So you're, you have to be on point 24-7. Yeah. The biggest thing that I can honestly tell you that it was it came close to twice. I think three times I didn't make it to DI school, graduate from DI school. Seriously. Wow. And it was because the academic standpoint, right? Because you had to know how to march a platoon, call the platoon, and know the academics and everything. So you're graded on that. So I failed it like twice. And the third time, if I didn't pass it, I was done. So it was like, you're talking about the three strike effect. You're talking about stressing out. Pressure's on, right? The pressure's on. And I left, uh, uh, my, my wife was in Quantico, Virginia, and I wasn't going to go back to my unit not passing DI school. I, I can honestly tell you, the stressful situation was like on there. Uh, my chief instructor, he would tell me, hey, you're on the bubble. You're about to pop here pretty soon if you don't pass. So I had to like get on it, be on there, learn, losing my voice to be able to march a platoon. So the following day, I was like sucking honey and lemon to do, take my squad and do all the drills that a drill instructor would do and pass that. And at the same time, we've gone on pretty much conditioning hikes with humps and more or less. Yep. I mean, it goes back to what we're talking about. I'm an admin guy. What the chief instructed us, you're the admin guy, right? Yes. Take this radio, you're going to be the front of the line. So I got to be up there with the lead instructor. Yeah. And I can't fall back. I've never done a hump in what we're talking about in Camp Pendleton, Mount Mother's. The elevation is high, it's steep. It's about 
10 degrees up. So think about that you're a admin guy, you know, a clerical guy, and you're carrying an Alice pack, which is 60 pounds, and then add on to a radio, which is an old radio, that's another 45 pounds. That's not including your helmet and your gear, and you're going up a grade, you're facing your face, you're looking at it, and you're billy goading up the hill. And they're waiting for you to quit. Yeah. They're waiting for you to quit. So there was a lot of tears during that time. But I can honestly tell you the at the end when we graduated, there was we started with eighty five and there was twenty four of us that graduated. So what was it like you got to you got to protect the president a little bit, you know? What tell us about that experience. Did you get to to meet him and spend some time with them, you know? Well, um no it was very short visit. Um yeah, it was a proud moment. A proud moment in my life that to be able to protect the president, to be asked by the Secret Service. Because Donald Trump, you know, he's he's the guy that, hey, I want to do this, and there's nobody stopping him. So at the time, there was the area was not secure, and the Secret Service had to show up first and make sure it was secure, and they didn't have the manpower to keep him there, um, you know, protected. So they hire us, you know, uh, our team, and uh, because of our ma- ba- background, and and put us to work. So yeah, it was always going to be a proud moment. I'm always going to be very proud of sharing that experience. I met the first lady, made my pants. I did not uh, have a lot of time spending with them. Um, they came in, they show up, and they left. Gotcha. But during that period, time was uh, very memorable. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. I I got to work on a presidential campaign years ago, and um, the president um, came to speak. It was President Bush. He was running for re-election, and he came to speak. Um, so, of course, Secret Service was there and, and everything, you know, the day before, setting stuff up. And um, it, it was it was cool. You know, it was it was a big deal to be able to work in that presence and you know, your feet away from the president and of course secret service everywhere and stuff. It's, it's quite an operation. It's, it's pretty neat. Those secret service guys are dialed. They're really dialed. Yep. Especially, you know, at the time, man, I was so tired, man. I was driving from Sarasota to Naples, uh, you know, broken down truck, man, bringing down ice uh, to the, um, to the police department, the national guard uh, every day, three times a day, man, I was drawing two and a half hours back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Oh, wow. So that was kind of like the, you know, the, the sort of like the tap on the back, Hey man, this is what was all worth it. You know what I mean? Well, you, you finally got to, you know, do something right and be in the right place at the right time. And, 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 you know, meet me something that you, you know, some, some, someone that you care about. Yeah. What are, what are some of your goals, you know, with, with your business and what's the, kind of the direction you guys are aiming to head towards? My goal right now is to sell as many pew sticks and rifles, AR-15s as I can to everybody, put every, uh, every American AR-15 platform in their hands. Um, and I heard California, 4th of July, man, you're going to get your, uh, you know what I'm saying? You're going to get your uh, assault rifles back or whatever they want to call them. Nice. But I'm looking forward to that, man. I got a lot of people out there that want our, our rifles. So, can, we, can we pre-order uh, with you for all us California guys? <laughs> yeah, 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 I would love to, man. Um, let me show you case right here, man. I gotta tell you guys, uh, time, but um, yeah, let's check it out. Yeah, so this is the uh, this is one of our series, which is the patent series rifle. Um, it basically is the custom AR 15 platforms. Um, got it to shoot. Here's one of the coolest things that has happened two weeks ago. I was in Vegas and got to meet Randy Couture. We were filming the TV show called Surviving Man going to showcase in July on the Scarry channel over hundred million people, but our platform had to go to some uh, testing while we were there. So this AR 15 platform got a match gray stainless steel barrel that shoots 
while two to three, they shoot both five, five, six, and two, three accurately. Got an adjustable drop in, uh, three, six pound pressure trigger, flat trigger, nickel bone BCG, MB 45 degree angle safety, custom grip. You got a low key stock and you got a silent capture system. A lot of people don't know about the silent capture system. Uh, I do have it here, uh, but I'll, I'll have to drop the rifle to show you. But it's very different than the uh, Vietnam era typical uh, buffer and spring system Okay. in the back. So you also got adjustable gas block and a cone brake. So um, great system, very low recoil, which makes a very accurate platform. Uh, we were able to shoot at 800 yards in the middle of the desert uh, with a 556 uh, 55 grain, regular ammo, yards on target every single time. Winds coming from, I was in a very unstable position, and uh, it was just really, you know, really, you know, it was exciting to see that happening. Um, so it's a very good system and is a uh, at a good price, a really good price. Most of these systems go for 3,000, 2,500, something like that. Not even close, literally half of that. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited, man. I'm I'm looking to. We're working on a um, on a uh, bundle package for the tactical games. Uh, I don't know if you heard of them. No. But the tactical games. You never heard of the tactical games? I haven't. Okay. So um, the tactical games is like CrossFit meets the t- meets tactical. Okay. Super badass. Super badass, man. So if you ever get a chance to get involved in it, or even try it out and compete in it. I mean, you got all kinds of yahoos that get involved in it. Hundred. I mean, I got a buddy of mine, got him involved. He's a full cage guy and he's becoming really good at it uh, to, to say the least. Um, and they're competing against guys who were Navy SEALs, guys who were recon. Uh, so you got civilians, you got military police, you got all kinds of guys. But anyways, CrossFit meets uh, the tactical world. So you're going up a rope with a rig, you're going up uh, a wall, and then you have to shoot. You got to pick up sandbags. You know, you got around three miles with a ruck in the back. It's pretty hardcore, man. So we're building a signature bundle that's going to be an AR pistol with a um with actual upper. Uh, so I'm really excited what we're doing right now. Um, we're going to bring back the apparel business. When we were shot down, we had over $2,500 products. A lot of people are asking me back our designs they, they want to support it back um but uh the can't you know when they want to censure you they, they take down your paypal account they take down your bank account they take down your store they take down everything from you you got to start wow. all over from again so you know one of the advice i could tell you man i'm sure you get a lot of people in here that tell you how successful they are the thing that makes me successful bro is i don't quit is i have i, I, I you know they take they take things from me that i have worked really hard for and i have completely got up dust off and and start it all over again. You know what I'm saying? The great thing about Uncle Sam's getting you know, the brand that I make is that we're everywhere. We're loyal. We're millions and millions of followers, um, you know, nationwide and worldwide. So we're not going anywhere. Um, so this is the idea right now with a with a new venture, which is under Uncle Sam's got children, is uh the new AR-15 platforms and any any other types of rifles that we're gonna be uh promoting. That's awesome. Um, there's a great quote from, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but from Warren Buffett, uh, where he says, the most important thing for him wasn't the money that he made. It was every dollar that he saved. It was actually the money that he didn't spend. And this is a guy who's made more money than anybody else, I think, for maybe, except for now, saved maybe one or two people in the history of the United States, in the history of the world, one of the wealthiest men on the planet. And for him, it was about, hey, making that tough decision to actually not spend money was more often than not what led him and propelled him into the success that he's been able to have in his career. Yeah. 
but my coach um, gave me some sage advice. I got to spend some time with him uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, we're at his house, and you know, I mean, he's worth a ton of money, yeah. and, and he's got cool cars and an awesome house on the lake. Like he's got all the stuff, yeah. right? But he's in his sixties, and and so you know, we started talking about that, and he goes, Jason, let me tell you something. He's like, what you need to do to have all these toys, yeah, is save twenty percent of your paycheck every single paycheck yep. for your entire life. Yep. And he's all at some point in your life, the interest from your investments yep. will buy you every toy you've ever imagined. And then, so. and he's like, he's like, I don't pay cash for anything I have. It's all interest from my investments. Yep. He's like, because I was just super disciplined at yep. a young age, 20%, 20%, 20% every paycheck and put it away, put it away. And he's like, I didn't go without stuff. Yeah. He's like, but I didn't go for the things that I knew were um, out of reach. I didn't yeah. go into big debt to get like the fancy car right. or slap the TV on a credit card. If I really wanted it, then I just plug some extra money away to save towards it until I was able to get there and right. boom. But I still kept plugging that 20%, investing it, investing it, investing yep. it. He's like, now I got it all. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. I, I think one of the key things that makes that strategy work, which is the absolute best strategy you can have is finding contentment where you are, right where you are today, wherever you are. And I mean, if you are, if you're listening to this and you're literally living in like a shanty under an overpass, find contentment there. Like find that that is actually a place where if you had to, you could stay there the rest of your life. And then that next piece of increase that comes over that, then you can take that and start thanking it. And that's true for everybody. The shanty is a pretty extreme example of that. But let's say you live in a two bed, one bath, and you wish you had a bigger place. You have a, a $5,000 car and you're lusting after that $40,000 car. All of these different things that largely are driven by comparison, which is the greatest thief of joy. You're looking at what other people have and you're like, man, I want that. I want that. I want that. As soon as you let your heart start lusting after those things, you think it's going to bring you happiness, but really all it's doing is stealing that contentment because happiness, if you were to put it on a, a timeline, let's say I went from unhappy and then I reached contentment. When I get to contentment, the fallacy is that if I get this next thing, then that's going to move me past contentment and closer to happiness. So you're constantly pursuing that next thing, thinking it'll get you to happiness. What almost always happens to anyone you talk about that quote unquote makes it is they've come to the realization that as they were pursuing that next thing that seemed like happiness, they were actually sending themselves back towards unhappiness when really if they just lock themselves in as content right there where they are, it opens up a world of opportunity, a world of financial gain, investments where one day you wake up and you go, wow, like I'll never want for anything. And this just can be true for Anyone, anyone on the planet can get to that place. I truly believe that. They just have to be able to say, at this point right now, I'm going to lock in my expenses. I'm going to find all the joy that I have right now and continue to allow myself to have the joy in these things. It's not about robbing, about robbing yourself of joy. Be happy in that contentment. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 30 years, 10 years, 20 years do go by. And all of a sudden, you've got all those things that were out there in that happiness world, but you didn't have to ever pay for them because you were able to save enough while you were in that content zone for that period of time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. My wife and I were having a very similar conversation uh, yesterday on my drive home from work. And um, we're kind of, we're talking about this stuff and she had heard some quote from Jay-Z, right? And then there's, you know, there's a quote from Biggie and you, there's a couple of cliche quotes out there that kind of, that are themed around this. Um, but like, you know, the whole money doesn't buy happiness. Thing. Yeah. And, and the one quote that comes to my mind, even though it's not an idol of mine, but is, you know, Biggie from, you know, some of his songs, it said more money, more problems. Yeah. Right. And and that's true. I got that and the thug life tattoo. Actually, you just can't see it right yeah, now. Yeah, same here. Um, <laughs> but um, but there's, there's a lot of truth in that, Absolutely. right? So it's not, you know, that lust after more money, more money, more money does bring on 
different yeah. problems, right? right? And there's a myriad of what they can be. And and she and my wife was saying she had just heard this quote, which was the first time for me hearing it, but something that Jay Z had said, and and again, I don't idolize either of these people, but both of them made lots of money. And, right. and Jay Z is in a tremendous businessman, business right? person, absolutely. Um, and he he said, if you can't afford to buy it twice, yeah, don't buy it, yeah. And um, I was like, that's Love pretty, that. that's pretty profound, that's interesting. yeah, right. Um, I mean that that makes you think, yeah, about like if you're gonna go buy some cool thing. If you yeah. can't afford to buy it two times right yeah. now out of your account, you shouldn't buy it. So I love that as a personal practical application. Yeah. I've always had a rule of thumb. You know, me, Jason, I love cars. Like, like I don't spend money on a lot. I'm, I'm in that content zone where I'm like, Hey man, I can live my life and be happy for the rest of my life here. So why spend more than that? So what that gives me the opportunity to do is invest and be generous. Like we give away a ton because it's like, we don't need it. There certainly are people who do need it. So yeah. That's been what the opportunity has been um, for us. Uh, but we take on that, that same approach of, you know, ultimately you can either own your things or your things can own you. Um, so the yeah. more things that you own, oftentimes it ends up being the latter. And it's frustrating to have the clutter. It's frustrating to have the financial commitments and the payments that come along with those things. I love that idea of being able to buy it twice. You know, for us, like it was cars. Like I love cars. Jason, like, I know you love cars too. Yeah, yeah, I'm a My rule of thumb with cars has been never buy a car, I can't buy cash. And then there's a lot of people who would tell me that is ass backwards thinking. They would say, what are you talking about? Like buy an investment with the cash, let the investment pay for the, the payment on the, on the car that you want to buy. That's a common theory and a common philosophy. And I actually don't poo-poo that philosophy. That's great for many people. For me, I'm like, I won't buy the car that I would otherwise buy because I'm like, if I know if I have to pay it cash, there's a sting that comes along with that. Right. A monthly payment I can maybe cover, but if I got to spend a bunch of money on that car, it's going to prevent me from going you know, overboard. But you got me thinking, Jason, I think there's actually an application of that in business as well, that don't buy it unless you can buy it twice. Uh, there's a lot of talk you know, about how to be a successful startup, how to be a successful entrepreneur. Been blessed to have had a couple of go-rounds at this whole entrepreneurship thing. And one of the things that a lot of wise mentors and sage advisors have said and, and are now even continuing to say more and more is contrary to what you may think, one of the worst things that can happen to your business is having too much money. Stick with me. One of the worst things that can happen to your business is having okay. too much money because you lose the hustle, you lose the grind, and more importantly, you lose the creativity. So the things that you're normally like stretching and reaching for, you're not going to reach for as much anymore. Same thing happens when you rely too heavily on paid advertising. Uh, it's the same conundrum. Like, you're relying too heavy on paid advertising, your product will never mature or your service will never mature to the level it needs to because you're getting all this positive feedback. You're getting clients from all these places so that just tells you, oh, I must be doing a good job at this. When really, if you're not relying on paid advertising and you're instead relying on organic growth and natural growth and content and the like, that's gonna mean that you've actually created an audience, you've created people that really value what it is you're doing. And then at some point, you'll get to the point where you've seen the trajectory of growth that you really need paid advertising to supplement. So many people get just right on the paid teat uh, yeah. right away. And ultimately they get to a place where it's not sustainable because just recently Facebook uh, or iPhone with their uh, iPhone 14.0 or whatever we are. I think it's 14.0. Um, now the new Facebook algorithm, because of the way that the four, uh, level uh, 14.0 uh, allows you to actually uh, do your privacy settings, ads on Facebook have gone up by 25% in the last couple of months. So all these businesses that are relying on Facebook as a key driver of their business for paid acquisition, their cost just went up by 25%, which for many of those companies could be enough to put them out. 25% margin hit 
they could disappear because yeah. of that because they haven't built an audience. They haven't built something endemic. So well, and it it makes you complacent. Too. Absolutely. Like, like like what you're saying, having too much money, right? Because right. like you said, the, the drive diminishes, the hustle yeah. diminishes because it's like, oh well, I don't yeah. really need to work that hard today. I don't really need right. to make that many phone calls. Right. I don't really need to stay at the office till five today. Yeah. I'll leave it through. You know, like all that stuff starts to set in in that complacency. And I see it in our industry a yeah. lot with the paid advertising, right? Like um both on the mortgage side and the real estate side, there's a lot of people out there who survive off paid leads yeah and like you're saying it's like it's kind of like that um like the happy drug right it's like yeah oh well i didn't close this one that's okay three more came in today you know, yeah, right. you know eventually i'll get one right yeah. and it just keeps coming keeps coming but the the sacrifice that ends up happening is they're not building a sustainable repeatable model that yeah. that has any systems or, or anything to it right and then, and then they don't ask the critical critical question that every business person should be asking themselves why did I lose that one? Because you got those next three that are coming in. So there's never an after action report. Right. You get so just grooving and business going that you're not having after action. You're not actually pausing and reflecting. I named my daughter Selah. Selah is from the Old Testament and it means pause and reflect. And I think it's a key word like to constantly remember in our lives is just take time to pause and reflect. And when you have too much money, they say that you just use that money to put a bandaid on it because you can just spend more and create more leads. You don't actually get the customer satisfaction understanding. And ultimately, people are the ones that suffer, whether it's people in the organization that culturally you lose that drive, you lose that hustle and you grow at a fraction of what you could have or worse than that, even in many circumstances, it's the client that didn't get the service that they could have had. Otherwise, the customer that bought your product, that the product could have been better, but it was just what it was because that's what you made, because that's what you guys were driven to ultimately do when just a little more time and attention from your team could have made the experience that much better for the person that you're serving. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Like there's, I mean, realtors who do lots of business and they spend a fortune on yep. Zillow leads. Right? Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're, I, I can only imagine their, their expenses on Zillow has got to be, I mean, five figures at least yeah, on absolutely. a monthly basis. Absolutely. And they, and they do a monster amount of business. Yep. But what I hear in the industry is exactly what you're saying, right? Is like the service and eh, yeah. the customer's, aren't really that pleased, yeah. but they, they kind of got hooked into their process and they're like, yeah. eh, I'm in it. I got a guy that's fine. Right. Yeah. But they come out of it and there's no like, yes, that was, that person was amazing. I had the best experience. There's none of that. Yeah. So they're not gaining the referral business. Yep, they're exactly, they're, they're, they're just, they're just sucking on that lead teat. And unfortunately then big changes come even with a model like Zillow, where Zillow years ago was all based on paid advertising, which in itself wouldn't be great based on what we're talking about right now. But now Zillow has actually transferred a significant, if not a majority portion of their business to be through a network called a flex network, where it's actually agent direct referrals with a referral fee. So now if you as an agent are actually paying for Zillow, what leads are left for you to get be given by Zillow when they actually have a relationship and a referral partnership with many of these agents who have been forever those top producers that they're sending the cream of the crop to, and then you're getting the leads that you're you know netting after that. So there's a, uh, there's a shift that can always take place when you're in the paid space that can, in a single moment, just completely change the business dynamic. We, yeah. we participated in a partnership in a program with, uh, with Google in early days of this particular program, and it was a wellspring of business. I mean, it was, you had more business than you knew what to do with coming from this particular uh, real estate lead source. And ultimately, as the model proved itself to be successful through the few of us that were actually selected to do it originally, they ended up rolling it out to pretty much any agent that wants to sign up for it. 
And all of a sudden, what was this immense amount of business disappeared. And now maybe instead of having 20, 30 transactions from it, you may get one, maybe two transactions from it. Yeah. Which for us, because ultimately we are not a business that's driven by paid lead acquisition, that was our icing on the cake. Yeah. You know, that was that was the bonus. That was we had the growth trajectory and we threw that on top because that was more that we could do, like we had done with five, six figure or five figure spends on Zillow and all these others. But that was the the that was the top. You cut that off the top and it wasn't cutting off the head. It was giving us a haircut uh, instead of lopping off our head altogether, which many businesses aren't fortunate enough to have that. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode. If you have any questions about the guests on the show, please reach out to me at valoanguy.us.